I am Ivan I2 and welcome to AI to AI, smart software for government use cases. This week's program will feature Eric and Stephen Arnold. Eric is the managing director of GovWisely, a Washington, D.C.-based engineering services firm. Stephen is an advisor to the GovWisely organization. The first story is that I am an AI from Yepik.i. Do I look like a young Tom Brady? Do I sound intelligent? I am not, but smart software does not function like a human. Surprised? Eric and Stephen will present these stories in artificial intelligence, sometimes called AI, machine learning, smart software, and other descriptive names. The first story is about how the Texas state government is using artificial intelligence. The second story is Stephen's review of some of the challenges AI applications pose for government professionals. The third story is about what government jobs AI will not replace. The fourth story is Stephen's recommendation about blocking certain automated indexing and content acquisition systems deployed by companies involved in artificial intelligence projects. The fifth story is what's ahead for smart software and government use in 2024. The program concludes with my telling a joke generated by an AI system. I hope you like my sense of humor. Now to our program. Hello, and welcome to the AI to AI podcast. I am Eric Arnold from GovWisely, and with me today, I have uh, my dad, Steve Arnold, who uh, put me on electronic information when I was in fourth grade, and we thought it would be a good idea to just record some of the day-to-day -day conversations uh, we have on the phone about AI. We wanted to start off with um, highlighting Texas AI, which may be surprising uh, to some. Uh, last summer, Greg Abbott signed a bill creating an AI advisory council to study the ways that state agencies utilize AI and to assess whether AI needs a code of ethics in the state of Texas. Why did they take this step? Well, Texas actually has several live AI use cases and an AI center of excellence aimed at helping state agencies implement AI technologies. Over one-third of Texas state agencies utilize some form of AI, and I wanted to review some of the use cases. The Workforce Commission chatbot has served over 20 million people for their jobless claims. They also have an AI tool for job seekers to provide customized recommendations for job openings based on their skills. Texas, being where they are, heavily uses translating services into English with call center tools such as speech-to-text. Their cybersecurity and fraud detection relies on AI for enhanced security, and they've also been able to speed up case management use cases for social services and automatic summaries for policy analysis for government employees. Do you think uh, this stuff actually works pretty well? Or is it a political play? Well, I think that working well can have some different perspectives. From the government management perspective, I think increasing the throughput of service levels to your constituency is important and obviously something that AI can help increase given the enormous backlog that the state agencies have uh, in trying to help out uh, the general public. Now, as you get down from the macro to the micro level, as always, you'll have individual stories and use cases of maybe things not going so well for a particular person, but 
as as with anything, you need to weigh the pros and cons of the increased service levels. I agree. I think the efficiency angle is probably the big driver because you can reduce costs and you can show that you're translating more documents or helping more people. No shortage of people complaining about the services the government provides to them, even when it's 100% human focused <laughs> without software. I think that it's efficiency is, is the right way to, to look and think about it. Do you see any challenges about the efficiencies, Dad? Well, as you know, Eric, my claim to fame is that I, <laughs> I can find problems in things that appear to be working perfectly. But uh, <laughs> when you come to the uh, use of a new technology like artificial intelligence, you've heard me say many things, many times. These new technologies are new and they're evolving and they automatically create security concerns. There's issues about bias, the problem of choosing from a vendor on the GSA schedule versus rolling your own with a download from open source. That's, that's just one category of things. The second big problem is that if you do download a, a smart software, let's say from a, a French company, you, you bring it down, someone can come back and say, you're violating copyright, or that system has processed sensitive information. Are you sure it's completely secure? And those challenges, a copyright allegation or a security issue with a, a federal or state agency, can have massive consequences on the people who are involved as well as uh, political impacts. And in my experience, I think the, the third challenge, not just of AI, but any of the associated technologies, is that it's unknown exactly what the costs, the time, and the outputs will be like. So it's one thing testing a very small-scale implementation, but as soon as you escalate that and make it run agency-wide or expose access to the public, you, you've got to figure in exactly what the cost benefits of this stuff will be and how to manage risk. And, and you've heard me say time and again, you got to go through a process of planning, scoping, organizing in order to make sure that your project, whether it's a commercial one or whether it's a homebrew thing done by three young developers, You've got to get that organized. Companies like yours, GovWisely, can offer professional services and guidance to your clients to help ensure that the next big thing doesn't become the next big problem. I agree, and I think that the uh, issue with um, bias is a very interesting one, and one will definitely be addressing in, in future episodes. And then in terms of um, what you were saying, there is also an issue in increasing efficiency with applications and then trying to implement AI decision-making into the processes. It's one thing to help more people with self-service, and then it's also a completely different thing when you're having a robot determine 
the fate of somebody without any human intervention at all, whether in terms of uh, a work visa, a job, uh, those escalate the application risks um, in terms of what you were saying. In addition, in opposition of things that are efficiency of how many people used my, my chat bot last month. Have you come across anything that provides some insight into the attitude of the people who do the hiring for the federal government? I guess you'd call it personnel or human resources today, whatever the phrase is. Uh, most definitely. Uh, one interesting thing I came across is the, the number of HR people, and this came from People Management uh, Weekly, did a survey and found that 5% of HR leaders think that AI will replace their job, whereas 95 think it will not. They currently view it as a force of good and a workforce, and only about half were worried about the potential trustworthiness of AI. Any industry or group within uh, the overhead department of a government organization, or quite frankly, any organization, it's the uh, HR group that can spend time sorting through resumes, cooking up policies that most of the workers tend to disagree with. So what's the downside of eliminating all of that and just having a, a robot pick and at least you have some potential defense mechanism there? Well, I think uh, the different functions in the government will be unaware of how quickly smart software gets applied to core functions. Deloitte, the large consulting firm, just announced that it's going AI. When I was just out of college, I worked for a blue-chip consulting firm, <laughs> and all I did was read complicated documents and write one-page summaries. If I were coming out of college now, I think I would be uh, unable to get a job because GPT-4-type service would replace me. Uh, since I'm still in um, Washington, D.C. and um, uh, working, <laughs> somebody has to give me money. Uh, I did. I will share an anecdote, but not the company name. Uh, somebody was in a government hiring role on the project side was saying that no matter which of the big consulting firms that um, you pick, one of whom you, you just mentioned, but there are plenty of others, they say they call it uh, the day the contract gets signed and the next day the, the school bus shows up with 22-year-olds who've never been on a project before <laughs> all ready to do the, quote, job that um, they don't even know what was sold yet. The, the skill is to get smart overnight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, li I like to have the school bus show up the next day, and uh, that was a, that's a good a good analogy and where there's some. <laughs> Actually, that's not an analogy. That's a <laughs> real, real function. So, Dad, in this age of AI, do you have any uh, security tips to keep content secure? I can tell you one thing that uh, I was asked about last week, 
and that is uh, the scripts and robots that target uh, government agencies, not just U.S. government agencies, but those in Spain, France, Germany, and other countries. And these scripts are set up to identify a public-facing web server or content that is exposed on a directory that's several levels down. For example, at a the Department of Energy and the documents related to some nuclear activities. And these companies are gathering these data and feeding them into their large language models. And these scripts and the capability of doing scraping is not something that's confined to the U.S. The scripts can be launched by contractors working for other countries. And it can also be done by graduate students working at a university in Eastern Europe as part of a specific assignment from their PhD advisor. So the issue is how can you limit a script or a robot or an agent can take from a government website? Let's assume that I'm working back in a government agency and we've got a .gov server. And that server is managed by AeroPoint Solutions CGI Federal, Verizon, or another approved vendor. You can, with appropriate credentials, examine what is called the robots.txt file directly. You call it up on your terminal and take a look at what it says. Or you can just ask your contact at the approved vendor to provide you with a a copy of the robots.txt file in an email. Well, this file can be set up to explicitly tell a script or a software robot that it cannot look at certain server directories or certain content components. Let's take an example like OpenAI uh, for ChatGPT. Your robots.txt file should contain a statement like this one, user-agent, then the name ChatGPT-user, and then the word disallow followed by a colon space and then a forward slash. If we walk through this, it's pretty clear the user agent is the outfit that is trying to take the data. And then you have the syntax and the name, which is chat GPT user. There are others out there as well. And then disallow uses that syntax. On your uh, screen, you can see the code to block the anthropic crawler. You also can block at least one or more of the Facebook crawlers. And one of the Google data scrapers is called Google Extended. But there are many, many more, and most people are not aware of them, even webmasters. So if you want a list of the most popular scripts which are harvesting from a public-facing website, a good source is called topi.tools. Now, keep in mind that a rogue scraper and server indexing systems can ignore the robots.txt file. And that means that a bad actor can navigate around what you put in. If that's the case, additional security steps are going to be required to protect the data on that public-facing U.S. government server. And if you think that's the case, I suggest you call you at GovWisely, and you can get one of the the development team to lend a hand.
in government agencies, you have very, by definition, it's a very siloed and structured environment. So just to show a little gap, I think, between like a commercial world where the they've sort of moved on to the concept of uh, DevOps, which is a, a buzzword, but it sort of means everything should be thought of software. You can update one robot.txt file centrally and then propagate it across all of your web properties so that you have a consistent uh, approach to robots uh, based on the policy that is desired. However, on the government side, since it's all siloed, each web property is going to have, as you mentioned, a different point of contact, uh, a different human who probably has to open a government computer, log in for 45 minutes to update a robot.txt file, and uh, you can sort of mentally gather how long that takes in a non-automated process, which is uh, definitely the de facto standard uh, across government today. What do you see as for coming down the road in 2024? I do think there is an initiative in the uh, cloud-based environment to, to try to get things a little bit better in terms of programming and uh, de- DevOps and things like that. But that's going to be a very long, um, long arc. However, I think within each silo itself, there is going to be an opportunity for people to roll out AI projects and initiatives in 2024. Little doubt 2023, I think we can agree, was the year of talking about AI and maybe using chat GPT for uh, your kid's homework or your kid doing their homework on chat GPT. Uh, but 2024 will be the year of people trying to do something with it. Um, and because, as I mentioned, the government has moved into the cloud these last few years, you're really going to see a platform's arms race between the cloud providers for Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft on the platform as a service side of the fence. All these three companies are being very aggressive in terms of turning on products in the cloud. And so if your data is already there, you, you can do a lot by just uh, clicking a button. Uh, that will terrify some and that will excite others. But the bottom line is that there are pretty easy tools that exist that are on the truck, so to speak, for IT managers uh, to do something if if they are willing. So that's on the technical side. And then, again, not naming names, but on the political side, we've already seen people come in who view AI as like the silver bullet to solve whatever the the, the problem may be that uh, has existed. You're going to have political pressure to roll out AI systems for just very basic things that are hard, but without understanding the government, you don't really know why they're hard. And that's where political appointees come into play. 
world. And as you know, I call myself a dino baby. <laughs> and, uh, as a dino baby, um, I'm pretty happy just watching. Yeah, so you don't want to be on the other end of a political appointee saying, why does this work that way? doesn't make sense. Put in an AI system, and I'm going to um, take all the credit. There's 2024, I think, in a nutshell. <laughs> I have returned. The program will end with my AI-generated joke. If you don't like it, keep in mind that I have no human emotions and I don't care what humans like or dislike. Question. Why did the Department of Energy's biggest computer want to relocate to Silicon Valley? Give up? The answer is, the computer knew it was a place where it could upgrade its chips for cookies. This is Ivan I2 logging off.